Hello and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This week we're joined by Dr Robert Lee, resident historian of the American West at Cambridge University. Dr Lee's paper, Indigenous Land and Sovereign Wealth in America, the case of the Connecticut School Fund, explores how post-revolutionary Connecticut utilised land reserves to fund government activity. Exciting and innovative, Dr Lee's previous work on land grab universities linked Indigenous dispossession to American institution building. The winner of the prestigious George Polk Award for Investigative Journalism, Dr Lee applies rigorous historical research to pressing contemporary concerns. I'll put a link to that project in the podcast description as it's well worth checking out. In that same mould, this new project promises to unearth the complex genealogy of sovereign wealth funds and link the seizure of Indigenous land to American progress and prosperity. We're joined as well by Megan Renoir, a PhD candidate at Cambridge University. Megan's work centres on land conflict, violence and US Indigenous relations in Northern California. Just like Dr Lee, her studies are not confined to the past and examine fraught and ongoing problems surrounding land tenure, Indigenous groups and the US federal government. My thanks go out to Dr Lee and Megan for taking the time to join us. We hope you enjoy this episode and I'm your host, Hugh Wood, a PhD candidate at Sydney Sussex College. So, hello and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. Uh, It's the 21st, it's a very lovely day, cold, crisp, blue. Uh, We're joined by Bobby Lee, um, who is part of the history faculty here, so we're very thankful for Bobby for joining us, and Megan Wenoir, who is a PhD candidate here. So, first off, thanks to them for joining, and yeah, if I could just ask Bobby to jump in and explain the paper um, for those who've not had the joy of reading it. Um, so tell us where we are in the world, what's going on, um, what's the kind of arguments and interventions that you're making. Great, thank you. Thank you for having me, Hugh and Megan. I'm uh, happy to be here back on this podcast. I think I was on a, an earlier iteration of it back in 2018 or 2019, and it's great to see it still going on. Um, so this paper, this piece of really preliminary research towards a larger project that I'm thinking about on the history of uh, land grants in North America, sort of from the colonial era uh, through the through the 21st century, focused on the area, um, the area that is now the United States. Um, this is a project uh, related to that larger work, some sort of preliminary research, and it's about something called the Connecticut School Fund. So the, the title of the paper was uh, Indigenous Land and Sovereign Wealth in America, the Case of the Connecticut School Fund. Um, so the Connecticut School Fund is a land-grant-based fund that supports common schools in Connecticut, what we now call public schools. There are dozens of these funds uh, across the United States. Um, uh, and they are sometimes connected with other funds for various types of social spending, um, uh, spending on universities, which is where a lot of my previous work uh, has focused, um, but also on other sort of uh, institutions of the, of the state. Um, and this is one of the earliest ones. And this is what interested me about the Connecticut School Fund. It's founded in 1795 uh, with, uh, with the sale to speculators of a large area of land, about 3.3 million acres, uh, that is claimed by Connecticut through its royal charter from the 17th century, uh, which is subsequently confirmed in part 
by the United States um, after the American Revolution. It confirms uh, Connecticut's right to sell a portion of what had been their larger, uh, their larger charter claim, a small segment of it, which is directly west of Pennsylvania, which is where we sort of are in the world. We're between uh, uh, what is today Ohio and what is today uh, what is today Connecticut, um, and they struggle to sell this land in the 1780s and in the 1790s. And the reason why they're struggling to sell this land is because it is controlled and owned and possessed by um, indigenous nations, spe specifically the Wyandot, uh, the Wyandot people uh, living south of uh, south of Lake Erie um, in this period. There is a war known as the Northwest War in the 1780s and 1790s. Um, and as the Wyandotte and others are defending uh, their homes in this region from the expansion, uh, uh, from the expansion of the United States, um, this delays and makes Connecticut's efforts to monetize this land problematic. And over the period of that uh, delay, in trying to capitalize on these land rights that Connecticut has been um, has uh, has received or has has had acknowledged by the United States, um, because of this delay, they switch their plans in terms of what they're going to do with the proceeds of these funds. Initially, as you can imagine, uh, if you've studied the history of the American Revolution, it's very expensive. Uh, there are huge debts all around. There are state debts. There are federal debts. Uh, and initially, Connecticut's plan is to uh, sell this land, get the proceeds, and service its debt, um, its state debt. Uh, specifically. Uh, but over the course of this war, as their plans are delayed, um, debt becomes less of a problem for the state of Connecticut because its, um, its federal debts have been assumed by the United States um, in, in 1790. So they start looking around for other things to do with the, with the, with the money. Um, they're anticipating this huge windfall, and they initially suggest... Um, putting it into a fund that is going to pay the salaries of ministers. And that causes a big controversy, uh, the biggest political controversy in Connecticut between 1793 and 1795. There is a, a fight between uh, Federalists and Democratic Republicans about what is going to be the fate of, uh, of these funds. And the ultimate resolution of this big political fight is the creation of the Connecticut School Fund. They are going to put the money not towards uh, the salaries of ministers. They are going to put it towards um, uh, towards the common good in terms of providing common school education for perpetual generations of uh, Connecticut children. So what they're creating here is a public endowment for education, which you don't see anywhere else um, in the United States um, in this period, done in this way, invested at the state level uh, for the benefit of, of future generations. And this becomes one of the models um, that then goes on to be elaborated um, in states uh, across the United States um, and really results in the creation of some enormous funds uh, that today we would often think of or describe as uh, sovereign wealth funds. Um, and sovereign wealth funds are, uh, it's a new term uh, for an old practice. It's a term that was coined in 
2000, circa 2005, to describe the growth of this type of sovereign wealth investing. Um, that's really exploding around around the year 2000, but it's a type of state investing that has sort of a murky backstory, uh, a, a very sort of unclear genealogy. And one of the roots in that genealogy are the creation of uh, permanent state funds for various types of uh, social spending, most prominently among them for public schools. Um, you might have heard of something like the Alaska Permanent Fund, which provides a dividend to um, to citizens of Alaska. You also have, uh, there's funds in Wyoming, there's funds in New Mexico, um, and there's the Connecticut State Fund. And this is one of the models uh, for this sort of larger system of um, sovereign wealth investing um, in the United States, the model that the United States um, has. So what I'm trying to sort of work through in this paper is how this form of, uh, of state investing for public education uh, takes hold. Um, and that is the, the backstory of the, of the paper here. Brilliant, thanks. Um, yeah, that's a very great answer. So, Megan, you just want to jump in? Yeah, thanks, Bobby. Um, so in the paper, you follow the money like pretty closely throughout the story. But um, there were a couple of points where I wasn't quite sure what was actually going on with the land itself, um, mostly around kind of understanding like what the land tenure situation looked like at that point in time. Um, so I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an overview of kind of how land tenure was shifting throughout this period that you're covering, um, and then maybe something around how the kind of overlapping claims between indigenous groups, speculators, settlers, et cetera, might have contributed towards uh, directly towards conflict. Uh, yeah, so the land tenure question is really complicated. There's sort of two sides to the coin of what's going on here. On one side, you have how this uh, how this land in what is today Ohio, south of Lake Erie, the land that becomes uh, the what's known as the Western Reserve uh, of Connecticut. If you've heard of Case Western Reserve University, uh, this is where it is. This is where Cleveland, uh, Ohio is. Um, so this area in the in the 18th century, um, it is uh, it's controlled, it's governed, uh, it's ruled um, the, uh, by the Wyandotte, um, whose authority is recognized in this area. That doesn't mean that they're using it exclusively. Um, over the course of the 18th century, you have a lot of uh, movement going on in this region from the from the west, coming from what is today Pennsylvania. Uh, you have the Lenape or Delaware, who are moving into places like the Muskegon Valley uh, in Ohio, and they are uh, making arrangements with the Wyandotte to use part of this land that becomes the, the Western Reserve. Um, you also have uh, Ojibwa peoples coming from north of Lake Erie uh, and also making arrangements with the with the Wyandotte to use uh, to use this region as uh, as hunting uh, as hunting land sort of on the on the south coast of uh, of, of Lake Erie. Um, the Wyandotte, like other nations in the Ohio Valley, are are, are living in um, towns, villages uh, that are growing large surpluses of corn. They're very, um, they're they're growing prosperous in the in the 18th century, and this is one of the things that really signals uh, to imperial powers that have interests in the region, uh, the French and the English, and then subsequently um, the Americans or the United States, uh, the the value of this of this region. Um, 
the sort of indigenous prosperity um, that Susan Sleeper Smith and others have, have written about um, that you see in this area. So there is the uh, indigenous authorities who were ruling this place in the, in the 18th century. Uh, and then you have the, uh, the land tenure systems and the, the interests of, um, of imperial powers and the pre-revolutionary and then pre-revolutionary colonies and then post-revolutionary states uh, of the United States. Um, their, uh, their interest in this region had been these sort of very outlandishly large colonial charters. These are the sea-to-sea -sea charters uh, in which they sort of claim space that they have never seen, don't really know what's there uh, in, the, in the 17th century. These get adjusted to the Mississippi River after the, after the Seven Years' War. Um, there are further adjustments as uh, states with or without these colonial charters are bickering during the American Revolution about uh, who that land is going, who that land is going to benefit uh, in the wake of the of the revolution. So there are all these arguments going on about what is going to be the ultimate disposal of this uh, of what we call the old Northwest, um, and sort of several several states. I mean Virginia, chiefly among them, sort of give up their claims to this space. It's only in the old Northwest that Connecticut is able to keep a claim on this space. But something that really interesting that's happening in terms of land and how it's being used by colonial regimes in North America, specifically the British colonies and then post-revolutionary uh, uh, post uh, states is really a, a movement away from granting land in general to, uh, to selling it. Uh, so in the colonial period, uh, in, the, in the British American colonies, um, British colonial governments do not generate significant revenue by selling land. They grant land. This is how towns are created in New England, the headright system in places like Virginia um, and in North Carolina. Uh, these, are, these are grants of land. You have selling going on in places like um, the proprietor colonies, Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, but they're typically at, at low prices and the receipts uh, that come in through this are the personal profits of the proprietor. They're generally not used uh, for paying uh, for colonial governments. Um, and this changes in a big way uh, around the time of the American Revolution where there had already been a movement towards thinking about rethinking how uh, land was being disposed to produce revenue uh, in sort of the mid-18th century, but the revolution and the high costs of it um, really trigger a wholesale shift uh, that doesn't move completely away from granting lands. Grants continue to happen, but they embrace um, uh, selling land, uh, selling public land, both by states, um, by the by the federal government. You know, this is the creation of the land office eventually uh, in the in the early nineteenth century uh, to raise revenue, uh, and this is initially to pay down to 
pay down debts. Um, so what you have going on um, in the area that is the Western Reserve is uh, the Wyandotte and others um, trying to uh, defend their independence north of the Ohio River uh, in the 1780s and the 1790s after the American Revolution when you have the, the United States asserting dominion uh, in this place. Uh, and forces within the U.S., both at the federal and in Connecticut's case at the, at the state level, uh, have an interest in monetizing this land, of turning it into, of turning it into revenue. Uh, and those are the two sort of uh, land systems that are coming into uh, interaction in, uh, in the Western Reserve area in the 1780s and 1790s. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so I want to ask you a bit more about what you did talk about in your introduction surrounding um, conceptualizing this money as a sovereign wealth fund. Um, so how are you kind of defining um, that term as a kind of monetary instrument? And how does the way you're using that term map onto its contemporary like, contemporary connotation, sorry, as it relates to, say, Norway or Saudi Arabia? Yeah, sovereign wealth funds are very, uh, it sounds like a very official term, but when you start digging into the literature, it's a lot less uh, official uh, than, than it seems. There are sort of competing definitions for what a sovereign wealth fund is, uh, and different ones will sort of lop out uh, different, different sort of actors in this contemporary space of state investment. Um, but the way, that, uh, the way that I'm looking at it is sort of this... Uh, I guess you would say a sort of middle of the road uh, definition. So the, the definition that I would use of a sovereign wealth fund um, is, a, uh, is, a, is a state owned pool of capital um, that is without liabilities. I mean, this is significant because it distinguishes them from things like pension funds where someone pays in through their, through their salary or something like that, and they expect to get um, some sort of payment back. Sort of sovereign wealth funds uh, don't have those types of liabilities built into them. They're sort of cousins of what we would call pension funds. Um, but there are these pools of of uh, state-owned wealth that don't have liabilities um, that are uh, sequestered for investment that is intended to benefit the populace, the citizens, uh, the the government uh, of a of a state that is running uh, that is running one of these funds. Uh, and the ones that do come to mind, um, the sort of contemporary ones that that come to mind, are like Norway's uh, petroleum fund. Um, there's funds in Abu Dhabi and Kuwait. Uh, we tend to think of these um, because the, the most valuable funds, sovereign wealth funds today, are connected to uh, commodities. They're commodity funds. They're places where um, uh, uh, revenues from extracted uh, natural resources, oil, gas, uh, coal, other other uh, other natural resources, uh, are funneled into uh, into these investment uh, into these investment vehicles. Um, and the U.S. versions of these funds um, map on to those types of commodity versions of the uh, of sovereign wealth funds, uh, both today in terms of where something like the Alaska Permanent Fund um, gets most of its uh, income from uh, from from oil, natural gas, other other extractive industries. Certainly, the case with Texas which is uh, often thought of as the, the Texas School Fund is often thought of as the biggest um, uh, or one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds um, in, the, in the United States. It's something like $50 billion that it's, uh, that it's worth today. Um, it, it's massive. Um, 
And it also gets uh, revenues from oil. I mean, this is how they become so big in sort of the modern period. But the commodity, and this relates to what I was describing earlier with the sort of the the, the move towards commodifying land to produce revenue for the early United States, uh, the land itself is the, uh, the, the initial commodity um, that is important for the creation of these funds. I mean, the United States has, has, has great hopes for the revenues that it's going to generate from, from selling public land. They, these turn out to be dashed <laughs> in the 19th century, where uh, land revenue does not produce uh, uh, the most significant portion of, of, of federal revenues. Um, but what does become uh, important is that uh, uh, states, uh, Connecticut is a bit of an outlier in this, being an eastern state that gets this sort of cache of several million acres. The, the Western Reserve is basically the size of Connecticut. So it's basically like it gets a duplicate of itself to sell, to raise revenue, to help, uh, to help uh, pay for, well, whatever it would like to, uh, whatever it would like to pay for. Um, but other states um, go on to get uh, also sort of caches of land through the um, through the territorial system that transforms te uh, territories into into states, um, and some of these states are going to sell off the land. Um, they're going to create uh, school funds. They're going to create other funds. Uh, they're not always going to do it through investment. Uh, the, there, there's all different types of, of these funds. Some are some are created through the, some are what we would call like credit funds um, that some of these states have, where they basically they take in the income, they spend it, and they it's like a bookkeeping practice where they mark off that they owe money to the to the public schools because they had spent it uh, the income on the the money that was meant for them. Um, so there are all these different varieties of it, um, but all. Western states, states that are carved out of the of the public domain, um, they generally get when they become states uh, some type of grant of land uh, within their boundaries that is then going to be used to help support the state. It's sort of like a dowry. It's sort of like a landed dowry of of uh, that they can use to help um, uh, put the hopefully put the fledgling state on firm financial footing. Um, and so these get elaborated all across uh, all across the American West, um, and they get different names over time. Sometimes they're called state funds. Sometimes they're called permanent funds. Uh, in the case of in Idaho, it's, they're called endowment uh, endowment lands or endowment funds, um, and uh, they go on to aggrandize. I mean, a huge amount of territory, um, which is why this is really important for the sort of the U.S. iteration of of uh, sovereign wealth uh, fund creation because um, just the school funds alone, they uh, aggrandize uh, more than 100 million acres. Uh, in what becomes the in what becomes the United States, this is this is a massive area. This is bigger than Germany. It's bigger than France. Uh, it's several multiples of the size of England. It's a very large cache of landed resources that they can uh, that they can redirect uh, into these funds after um, this land is expropriated from indigenous nations. Yeah, I feel like this is already kind of touching on our, our next question quite neatly. Um, but what we're kind of generally talking about here is a group of developing states um, learning not only how to govern effectively, but also kind of establish a mode of economic development. Um, where do you think Connecticut, Connecticut kind of got the idea from for the their sovereign wealth fund? And then 
obviously in the story you tell, it's not necessarily a positive outcome for Connecticut in this case. Um, but do you think other states that followed maybe use this as like a cautionary tale? Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there are two questions. So uh, remind me if I don't get to the second <laughs> one, uh, but I, by the time I finish the answering the first one, but where do they get the idea? Um, I mean, that's a great question. And the answer, I don't think, is some satisfying, like, eureka moment that you can pull out of, out of the archive. Uh, it comes from uh, a, a confluence of factors um, and thinking about how land, uh, colonized land, uh, land that had been expropriated from indigenous uh, nations, had been turned towards educational purposes um, in the past. So if you look at the township system in, in New England, right, this is where Connecticut is coming out of. Uh, this is the way that it um, uh, this is the way that it colonizes uh, New England. It creates these towns, you know, six by six, um, maybe a square mile. Uh, and as part of that process, it will set aside land for, um, for churches, for schools. Um, and that is a local, uh, that's used locally to help pay for uh, to help pay for the schools, maybe this land will be uh, leased or it will be farmed in some way, and the proceeds can help pay the salary of the minister who might be doubling as the schoolmaster uh, in one of in one of these towns. Right, so there had been this practice of on the local level using what looked like uh, land grants to um, to create um, a, 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 an endowment for local schools. There had also been for colleges um, across the, the colonies. You know, I went to, um, I did my, my undergraduate at Columbia University, which in the colonial period was King's College. And if you look on maps of New York from the 18th century, you can see that sort of King's College has uh, plots of land in what is today upstate New York, where, where Columbia, right, isn't today. It's in, it's, it's in Manhattan, right? Um, so there had been private institutions uh, that had been uh, funding themselves or subsidizing, uh, uh, being subsidized through um, through the possession of landed estates. So there is already this early modern practice of holding landed resources and using the income that they generate to help support charitable or uh, or, or or quasi public. Um, institutions um, uh, of uh, um, churches, colleges, um, and what's happening is Connecticut is grafting this onto the in, into the into the governmental structure of this new state uh, that they that they've created. So they don't come up with the idea of having uh, having uh, having an estate that's going to generate an endowment that that can, can be used for for schools. Um, they're making it public in a in a way that it hadn't been before um, in the in the in the colonies um, the second part you know what happens with this one this is also what is so interesting to me um, about the Connecticut school fund so it is really on the forefront of the creation of these uh, state level uh, common school funds using proceeds of, of, of land um, to generate a fund that they can be um, invested in various different things, mostly things like mortgage bonds, but also bank stocks and other things. Um, and they have what is 
grows by the early 19th century into about a $2 million fund, which is, which is huge. Uh, I mean, like, this is way b bigger than, like, the endowment of Yale at the time, right? It just sort of, like, blows it out of the water. It's not even, it's not even close, right? Um, they have, so they have this big fund, and by the time you get to around 1820, the state legislature, um, it institutes tax cuts, basically. It cuts the taxes, uh, the state-level taxes, um, that it is using to help defray the costs of the common schools in the state, and it shifts to basically relying almost entirely on the on the common school fund. There's a super majority of the funding for schools in Connecticut is coming out of the common school fund uh, in the antebellum period from the 1820s uh, to the 1850s. And what happens very quickly um, is that people start noticing that the schools are getting worse. Because the common school fund, the dividend that it's paying while it's you know, astronomically larger than any other uh, sort of school, uh, state school system in the in the United States at the time has. It's not enough to pay for the to pay for the schools. It's not enough to keep them open the whole year. It's not enough to recruit um, high quality teachers to provide uh, uh, supplies that they might need. Um, and Connecticut schools get worse, and this is noticed by people inside Connecticut, uh, by observers outside Connecticut, especially with sort of a bit of uh, a, a schadenfreude uh, attached to it by, you know, like neighbors uh, like, like, like Massachusetts or, 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 or New York. Um, and people are describing the Connecticut school fund as a curse. So they're describing it as like like a resource curse. I mean, this is what we would call it today, something like a like like the resource curse that you see uh, when nations have abundant uh, abundant resources, you know, unlimited uh, oil uh, revenue, and for some reason that interacts with their policy choices in a way that um, is detrimental to uh, to development in some way. And this is what happens in Connecticut. Between the 1820s and the 1850s, um, their schools get worse. Um, and this changes in the 1850s when they finally go back to, after sort of much, uh, much uh, reform efforts, uh, they, they move back to a model with um, local taxes, um, uh, uh, town taxes and district taxes uh, for schools. And this, uh, this stabilizes and improves uh, the funding situation of their, of their school system later in the 19th century. So what this also does is sort of wipes out the significance of the school fund dividend as really a significant portion of the income. So what you see happening is when the, when the, when the school fund dividend matters the most to Connecticut in the first half of the 19th century, it has the most detrimental effects because of the way that it interacts with the, with the policy, uh, with, with policies in the state, with tax policy in the state. Um, and what's so compelling about that is because it sort of runs counter to one of the sort of big stories that we tell about um, the consequences of uh, U.S. colonialism uh, and the expansion of the United States. 
And that is that while the expansion of the United States created um, hugely harmful effects uh, for uh, indigenous nations, um, endemic poverty, uh, lower educational uh, attainment, lower lower life expectancies. Um, uh, we know that these had uh, that the uh, the reduction of uh, access to resources to indigenous nations had detrimental effects. We tend to think that this was capitalized on effectively uh, by the United States or by the states that were able to um, benefit from the uh, from the um, uh, from the harm that they inflicted on indigenous nations. And this is a situation where you see uh, what would be, uh, what could be described as a, uh, as a lose-lose situation, not of sort of, uh, not a, on an equal basis uh, by, by any means, but what Connecticut got out of its willingness to participate in the violence that enabled them to, to sell and reap profits uh, from this land was the privilege of making their schools worse for their children and their grandchildren for, uh, for a generation. Um, so it shows the sort of uh, the, uh, the way that the, 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 the settler state and its development was ad hoc, uh, was not uh, omnipotent or omniscient uh, in, in any way. Um, it, uh, it expropriated this land, it created uh, this fund, but it didn't um, do much, uh, much good with it when it mattered most. Mm. Yeah, so I do want to jump in here and talk a bit about so settler colonial theory and one of the things that scholars within that world talk about is the elaborate creation stories myths that settler states tell about their um about their creation and what they erase in in those stories namely indigenous uh, violence done against indigenous communities so i think one of the kind of critical interventions of your paper is to connect dispossession to economic growth even if it's not kind of wholly successful what do you want readers to take from you centering dispossession in this story about economic growth. Um, what's it doing? What work is it doing within the, the project and the story that you're telling? Yeah, I think there's, um, I think there's a, a sort of a, a rising wave of, of scholarship interested in the question of the relationship between um, indigenous dispossession and economic growth. Uh, in the United States, you see writing about this from uh, in, a, in a lot of different venues in a lot of different ways. I mean, right now I'm reading uh, uh, Michael Whitkin's Seeing Red, which describes the sort of political economy of plunder uh, connected to treaty making um, in what is today uh, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, there have been a, recent essays in the Journal of Economic History uh, trying to uh, bring the history of dispossession into the stories that we tell about uh, development or or economic growth um, in the United States. And what I would like, well, if this work ever sees the light of day, what I would like uh, readers uh, to to get out of it is to um, 
to push them to think about this issue and to look deeper into the relationship between economic growth on the one hand um, and indigenous dispossession on, on the other. Um, because there's a way uh, in which, and this goes to back back to what I was saying uh, earlier, um, that we can, the, the sort of easy story to tell uh, is one of, one of loss and gain. Uh, but as we can see here, and as I think we can see if we start looking closely in other places, how the United States um, tried and failed often to capitalize on indigenous dispossession, um, how the story isn't so pat or, uh, or, so, or so clear, um, and the benefits to the United States of engaging in uh, wholesale dispossession of indigenous peoples across the continent. Um, loses some of its uh, uh, sort of utilitarian rationale that some people might um, might might see in it. Yeah, I want to dig in, I guess, a bit more into kind of the role of violence in, in what you're talking about just now. Um, so in the story you're telling in the paper, as the kind of war is nearing its end or, or its kind of culmination, um, you see this kind of increase in investor confidence in in this plot of land. Um, is this convergence telling us something about the kind of pacification of land um, and and society being a kind of necessary condition and catalyst for shoring up confidence in the market? Um, or do you think we can say that the state is essentially deploying violence um, as a way to create and develop its market? Is, does that resonate or? The speculators are watching what is happening, and uh, the legislators in Connecticut are watching what is happening in this Northwest War. Um, so the sort of the big events in the in the Northwest War, there's a series of treaties um, uh, that are um, at the the federal treaty negotiators are able to. Uh, get signed by um, certain native individuals who don't necessarily speak for their nations um, and there is violence um, as a result sort of on the what is like called the frontier uh, of Ohio um, you have one of uh, sort of uh, what is it the um, St. Clair's defeat uh, in 1791, one of the great losses of the U.S. Army to a combined uh, indigenous force, um, and then the, the return sort of volley by the United States uh, as this sort of scorched earth um, policy um, in, the, in the Ohio Valley, which really culminates with the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794, and then the end of this war with the, with the Treaty of uh, Greenville uh, in 1795. And these events are very well publicized. Um, there is a growing newspaper network in the, in the United States in this period. Um, dispatches are, are coming out about this, and uh, the state of Connecticut uh, which is looking to sell this land is actively holding on to it uh, throughout this war, holding back a sale um, because explicitly uh, that they are waiting for U.S. conquest in this region uh, to be completed because they expect that this will bring a rise in prices. Um, and this is exactly what does happen as the war turns in the favor of the United States in 1793, in 1794, uh, in 1795. Um, 
you see the offers that are coming in from speculators to the state in order to uh, to try to acquire this Western Reserve area, they increase, you know, from $300,000 to $500,000 to more than a million dollars, and then ultimately uh, for $1.2 million, which is what they sell um, the, the Western Reserve for um, in, in 1795. Um, so there is, is is conscious sort of following and thinking about how to capitalize on the violence of this war. There is a really interesting theme, uh, a sort of seam of anti-war sentiment uh, in this period. Uh, that's sort of alongside uh, uh, all of the reports in the in the press, uh, where they are discussing um, uh, these treaties as uh, as being. Um, a sort of fraudulent imposition um, on on the nations in the, in the Ohio Valley, a sort of uh, you know a, a agreement forced at the end of a bayonet. Uh, this is the way that they're they're describing them. Um, but these are the uh, these are a, a minority um, in the sort of public prints of the of the United States at the time. Um, but it does show the this very conscious awareness of how. This uh, uh, this political economy of land of indigenous land redistribution uh, is is working um, in the 1790s. Yeah, so uh, I think we're kind of drawing to a close. But Megan, if you just want to um, finish up, that'd be great. If you've got one more question. Yeah, we'll end with a heavy hitter. <laughs> um, so you're you're connecting this kind of to the as we spoke about before to the contemporary moment um, through kind of discussing um, the Saudis and other um, sovereign wealth funds. So what can understanding histories of sovereign wealth funds tell us about the relationships between violence and sovereign wealth funds today? Um, or more broadly, the relationship between, and this is very broad, <laughs> between violence, natural resources, and economic growth? Well, in the latter, it will tell us that there's a, a deeper history <laughs> Of this that goes beyond much deeper than the um, than the traditional story that um, scholars have been telling about sovereign wealth investing and its development, which is generally a story that starts circa 1950s and is a very modern uh, and is a very modern story associated with um, a really uh, uh, oil and the extraction of uh, of oil. But as to the sort of first question about what we can uh, learn about modern funds from what is going on in the early United States, this is very much an open question because we don't have a clear enough genealogy of sovereign wealth fund development to be able to draw sort of clear connections between what Connecticut is doing in the 1790s uh, and what Kuwait is doing in the 1950s. Um, one of the hopes for this research is that it sort of stimulates uh, historians to start thinking uh, more actively about the history of, uh, of sovereign wealth uh, investing and to start to draw out some of, some of those uh, linkages. But I would say um, that at the moment, I certainly don't know. Um, and one of the exciting things is that I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, so it's something that could really be looked into uh, more, more seriously. And that's what I'd like to see uh, come out of this work as well. Brilliant. Yeah. So thank you very much, Bobby, for sitting down with us. And thanks, Megan, for joining in. So we'll just finish there.
Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that episode. There'll be another episode coming in short order, so do be on the lookout. I hope you stay well. Goodbye.